1: Hi, ParCast listeners, it's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, available now at parcast.com cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence, details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible. So thank you. Visit parcast.com/cults to order your copy of Cults: Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com/cults to order today.
2: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder and elder and animal abuse. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. There's no denying that nursing is a female-dominated field. According to Becker's Hospital Review, between 2014 and 2019, only 1 in 10 registered nurses were male, likely because caregiving is often perceived as a feminine task. While today, assigning gender to a specific profession is culturally rejected, the lasting echoes of age-old biases live on. Nurse Colin Norris may have felt that burden. Perhaps he felt emasculated and sought power. Or maybe, as a man largely raised by his grandmother, he internalized resentment for older women. Because early in his career, he began denying his elderly female patient's care. While we can't know for sure what was going on in Colin's psyche, in 2002, his inner turmoil came to a head. It wasn't just a compulsion to refuse care. He wanted these older women gone. So he took a syringe and made it his weapon. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill, We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair
0: Murdon, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to providing Alistair with some medical insight into our case of Colin Norris. He was a British nurse with an unusual approach to how he cared for his elderly patients. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and
2: all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our one part episode on Colin Norris, a Scottish nurse who lethally injected four elderly patients in Leeds, England in 2002. Today. We'll track Colin's career woes and growing aggression, which spiralled into a series of hospital attacks. We'll also explore how his own arrogance led to his capture. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. Late in the evening of November 19th, 2002, Hospital staff gathered around a nurse's station in Leeds General Infirmary, chatting. A lanky male nurse named Colin Norris shrunk away from the others, pretending not to listen. They were used to that. But Colin's ears perked up when one nurse wondered out loud how a particular patient might fare through the night. Colin chimed in with his own experience as if making a prediction. Whenever I did nights... Someone always died, it was always in the morning when things go
0: wrong, about 5.15 a.m. In hindsight, Alistair, this strange attempt at socialization was cause for concern. It's actually pretty common for hospital nurses to discuss their patients' health outcomes, and this is because they engage in a lot of crossover care where they assist one another with each other's patients. What strikes me as strange, though, is Colin's specificity and crassness. Experienced nurses can usually tell when a patient might pass based on a number of variables, but that insight should always be expressed respectably. Colin showed no tact by forecasting a patient's death the way he did. Even worse, Colin's guess wasn't far
2: off. Around 5.15 a.m., an 86-year-old patient suffered a health crisis, She was found choking in her room and soon slipped into a coma. As doctors tended to her, Colin watched from the doorway. His mouth broke into a sly smile as he murmured, Told you so. The other nurses didn't realize it yet, but Colin's grave prediction was far more than coincidence. Long before Colin Norris was predicting hospital deaths, He was a young boy coping with a confusing home environment he was born in 1976 in glasgow scotland to a painter and a typist but when he was just nine his parents divorced after it seems colin's father became estranged this likely wounded colin who'd now lost his primary example of manhood but he would soon have a new parental figure his stepfather raymond who entered colin's life when he was about 13. This sort of adjustment composed difficulties for many children and Colin may have found it especially hard to adjust. Because rather than embrace his blended family, Colin clung to just one beloved relative, his maternal grandmother, Elizabeth Ogilvie. Not long after his stepfather and mum moved in together in 1989, 13-year-old Colin is thought to have moved in with Elizabeth who was in her 50s or 60s. They seemed to develop quite a bond, and she may have even inspired Colin to pursue an early role in healthcare. A Boy Scout, he volunteered to help people with learning disabilities. This may have given Colin a sense of purpose since, as he hit his teen years, Colin struggled academically. It's also possible Colin was grappling with his sexual identity. He later came out as gay. Ultimately, Colin finished his secondary schooling at age 16, like most teenagers in Scotland, and left for university in 1992 to study travel. But his time there proved brief. A year later, 17-year-old Colin abandoned his studies. But he did stay true to his chosen field. For the next five years, Colin worked at various travel agencies. We don't know exactly what he did, But it seems he had the time and freedom to explore emerging parts of himself. Sometime in the mid-90s, Colin finally came out to his loved ones as gay. And it's possible that voicing his truth inspired what came next. In the late 1990s, Colin was called to change careers. He told friends that he wanted to deal with people and get to make a difference in their lives. So, in September 1998, 22-year-old Colin headed to Dundee University's School of Nursing and Midwifery in Scotland for his Higher Nursing Diploma. It was a brand new venture. But it seems Colin hadn't predicted how tough it would be. Like in secondary school, Colin didn't excel academically. And his next move did little to help that. While inundated with coursework, Colin took on two part-time jobs, and his packed schedule seemed to stir up dormant resentments at himself, at life, at those who tried to tell him how to live it. Colin developed a poor attitude toward his studies. He complained to a colleague that he didn't like working with elderly patients. They reminded him of his grandmother, and he felt uncomfortable bathing them.
0: There's no doubt that most people wouldn't want to bathe their grandmother, but frankly, Colin picked the wrong line of work if this was his boogeyman. Generally speaking, a large percentage of hospital patients are elderly and naturally most rely on dutiful nursing. For him, to write off an entire group of patients like this was extreme and also troubling. It's a disturbing notion that health practitioners may discriminate against certain types of patients, especially those that are highly vulnerable, but it is a reality that I've witnessed firsthand. For example, there have been times that I felt doctors taking care of older patients were complacent or less proactive than necessary simply due to ageism. I've also seen biased treatments doled out to patients who suffer from things like substance abuse, mental health issues, and other stigmatized diseases. For someone going into professional caretaking, let's just say Colin's attitude and approach were definite red flags." And his behaviour only
2: worsened. Colin began calling in sick frequently, then stopped showing up for training altogether. His personal tutor, Isabella McLafferty, warned Colin to shape up. But Colin had a strong will, and if he didn't want to be somewhere, he wouldn't. Still, there were some classes he seemed to enjoy. In 2001, one lecture in particular sent his mind spinning. During that particular session, McLafferty detailed the murder and abuse accusations against a nurse who, like Colin, was from Glasgow, Scotland. Her name was Jessie McTavish, and in 1974, she'd been sentenced to life in prison after being found guilty of injecting one of her elderly patients with a lethal dose of insulin. Fortunately for her, a successful appeal meant she would only serve five months of her punishment. McLafferty warned her medical students against elderly patient abuse and the risks of tampering with medications. But Colin took Jesse's story to heart. He may have even found a role model in her, placing her method in his back pocket. Perhaps it would soon prove useful. Coming up, Colin takes the wrong lessons from school into the workforce.
1: Hi listeners, it's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, and you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power, cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like nexium heaven's gate the people's temple and more revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan visit parkast.com slash cults to order your copy of cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them that's parkast.com slash cults And on behalf of everyone here at Parcast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy.
2: Now, back to the story. In October 2001, 25-year-old Colin Norris secured his first staff nursing job at Leeds General Infirmary. He promptly relocated from Dundee, Scotland, where he just graduated nursing school, to Leeds, moving into a flat with roommates. This was a new chapter of his life, his official start as a practicing nurse. But for Colin, the job couldn't have been worse. He was assigned to the orthopedic ward and to working with the elderly. Even though he'd supposedly chosen to live with his grandmother as a teen, Colin had since professed a strong dislike for patients who reminded him of her. And at his new job, he didn't hesitate to express that repulsion. He told some aging patients that he hoped they suffered and would, quote, rot in hell. And he all out refused care for certain patients who needed baths, bedpan changes and new bedding one might assume that Colin's behavior could be deemed
0: criminal. It's critical that elderly patients are regularly washed and get fresh bedding. Bacteria from poor hygiene and dirty sheets can lead to infection, and this is particularly dangerous for a population who's at high risk for developing bed sores, which are skin lesions resulting from prolonged pressure, friction and poor circulation. If left untreated, any infection could become systemic and ultimately deadly. A nurse neglecting these basic aspects of care also puts their hospital in a precarious legal position, and Collins' refusal to manage his patient's basic hygiene should have gotten him fired. Licensed nurses must deliver in this regard, and if they can't, they're not cut out for the job. Despite his lack of
2: professionalism, there is no evidence that Colin was ever reprimanded. And as the hospital seemingly turned a blind eye to their suffering patients, Colin picked up a second nursing job, working across town at St. James's Hospital.
0: Nurses often start their careers making more modest salaries, so they sometimes take per diem nursing jobs at other hospitals to supplement their income. As the name suggests, per diem nurses are paid by the day and they're welcomed additions to hospitals who may be experiencing staff shortages or need more shift coverage. It's definitely an effective way for nurses at any career point to make more money and it could even afford them additional experience depending on where they get stationed. The primary motivation here for nurses in my experience is financial. Colin, understandably, may have wanted some extra income. Finances do seem like a likely motivator, since St. James's
2: Hospital also assigned Colin to elderly patients. But rather than look for a way out, Colin snapped. On May 2, 2002, 90-year-old Vera Wilby was admitted to the Leeds General Infirmary. She needed hip surgery after a recent fall. Post-op, 26-year-old Colin Norris was assigned to her recovery team. At some point during Colin's May 17th shift at Leeds General Infirmary, Willby sharply demanded something to ease her pain. Though annoyed, Colin administered morphine. Willby became drowsy and seemed comfortable. That was until Colin administered more medication, and it was no longer morphine in his syringe. Ninety minutes after Colin clocked out for the night, doctors found Wilby semi-conscious and experiencing an apparent hypoglycemic attack. With Vera Wilby's life on the line, they worked quickly to stabilize her. And fortunately, she recovered. But just over one month later, Colin struck again. In June 2002, 80-year-old Doris Ludlam and 88-year-old Bridget Burke were admitted to Leeds General Infirmary under Colin's rotation. Like Vera Willby, both were recovering from hip surgeries. Colin gave both the women double doses of the painkiller diamorphine. He also administered insulin, though neither patient was diabetic.
0: Colin was clearly making a killer cocktail. The combination of diamorphine, an opiate, and insulin could be disastrous. As opiates depress respiratory function and oxygen intake, insulin administration could cause non-diabetics' blood sugars to dangerously plummet. This is a scary recipe for the body's central nervous system, or brain, because it can't function without oxygen or adequate blood glucose. The insulin alone would have been dangerous enough, in this case, as we've seen in previous episodes, but the opiates added grim insurance. Other than for a diabetic patient with a pain syndrome, there'd be no reason to use these drugs in any synchronized way. It's pretty clear that Colin was intending to cause serious harm. Doris Ludlam was discovered in a coma about 40 minutes after
2: Colin's shift on the morning of June 25th, 2002. She died on June 27th. Bridget Burke fared little better. She suffered a hypoglycemic attack on July 1st. Her death the next day was ruled a stroke. Colin had just committed his first murders. And he'd gotten away with it. Maybe he felt a sense of vengeance, Ludlam and Burke representing every elderly woman he'd hated bathing. Or maybe murder had become a means of expressing his resentment for authority. Either way, he wasn't about to stop. Remember, Colin had two jobs, and he'd only killed at one. Three months later, that would change. On October 10th, 2002... Colin had the day off from Leeds General Infirmary and was working at St. James's Hospital. One of his patients, 79-year-old Irene Crooks, had just been admitted for a fractured hip. She required oxygen and a walker to get around, but for the most part, her recovery looked promising. Her nurse, Colin Norris, even recorded her improving condition in his notes. Rare, positive feedback from him about an older patient. Unfortunately... Crooks' progress took an unexpected plunge. At around 6am on October 19th, Colin claimed he walked into the room of Crooks to find her, quote, totally unresponsive. She died a day later. Like Burke and Ludlam, Crooks suffered a hypoglycemic attack even though she wasn't diabetic. Colin had established a clear pattern and then He got cocky. In November 2002, 86-year-old Ethel Hall was admitted to Collins Ward at Leeds General Infirmary to recover from hip surgery. She was told she'd likely be discharged quickly. But on November 19th,
0: she began having fainting spells on her hallway walks. Fainting spells are usually vascular issues, and when people reach their 80s, their blood vessels don't work like they used to, which can diminish blood flow to the brain. Interestingly, fainting is a protective survival instinct because lying flat allows gravity to shift the blood that's been pooled in the lower extremities to be diverted back to the brain. Many other things can cause fainting, though, including dehydration and being overly medicated. It's hard to say exactly what was happening with Ethel.
2: However, Colin didn't seem all too concerned. A day after Hall's fainting spells began, he joked with his colleagues about some of the recent deaths that occurred on his shifts. Then he predicted that Ethel Hall would die down to the minute, 5.15 a.m. Fellow medical staff didn't know how to react. Though they might have found it strange, it was obvious from his tone that he was attempting to brag about his foresight. Even stranger, Hall did take a turn for the worse, right around 5.15 a.m. Her blood sugar levels dipped dangerously low, and despite medical intervention, she slipped into a coma. In the weeks following Hall's sudden decline, doctors ran blood tests to see what may have caused it, Results showed abnormally high levels of insulin. Like Colin's prior victims, Hall didn't have diabetes, so there was no medical rationale for this, and she wouldn't be able to provide any clues verbally. Unfortunately, Hall would never regain consciousness to give her side of the story. She died of brain damage on December 11th, 2002. This time, however, The mysterious death wasn't brushed under the rug. News of Colin's grim foreshadowing spread fast at Leeds General. Concerned, the hospital's leadership called the West Yorkshire Police. Coming up, investigators arrive, their sights set on Colin Norris. Now, back to the story. In December 2002, 26-year-old nurse Colin Norris was in hot water, but he didn't know it yet. While he continued to balance shifts at two hospitals, one of his workplaces, Leeds General Infirmary, had contacted the police. Just days earlier, Colin correctly predicted the exact date and time patient Ethel Hall would die. And this was just the latest mysterious death. Patients Doris Ludlam and Bridget Burke had also apparently died from hypoglycemic comas, despite none of them being diabetic. West Yorkshire Police Detective Chief Superintendent Chris Gregg quickly hired a team of medical experts to investigate. Blood tests later revealed that the three dead women's bodies contained high levels of insulin. In fact, the insulin in Ethel Hall's system was 12 times the normal level. Proof she'd been overdosed. If that wasn't damning enough, Colin was arrogant and uncooperative when the police questioned him. Chief Greg got the feeling that Colin was more concerned about being smarter than investigators than he was about providing answers. He remembered, each time we asked a question, he simply evaded it. It was as if he was saying, you can't prove a thing. That same self-importance Colin expressed when mistreating elderly patients came out again, this time among those who could get Colin behind bars. He was unintentionally digging his own grave. And he kept digging. When asked about the murdered patients and their families, Colin displayed no empathy. In fact, he claimed not to remember any of the women he was accused of murdering. Instead, He simply said he'd been, quote, unlucky over the past 12 months. To investigators, bad fortune had little to do with it. Colin hadn't even provided answers surrounding Ethel Hall's death. The death he'd precisely predicted. Authorities arrested 26-year-old Colin in December 2002. However, the lack of a confession or witness account meant he was released on bail soon after. Colin wasn't entirely off the hook, though. His nursing license was suspended, and the West Yorkshire police kept digging. Meanwhile, Colin travelled abroad. Maybe he felt he wouldn't have the chance to let loose again for a while. While on a cruise ship in 2003, he met his boyfriend, Mark Wilds. Even though Colin shared nothing about the ongoing investigation, he did show some questionable habits. For one, he was an avid fan of Holby City, a popular British medical drama with a plotline about a medic turned mass murderer. Far more concerning, Colin was violent, hitting wilds, and even once throwing a bottle at him. It didn't take long for the two to break up. In 2005, Colin had just lost a lover, and with breakthroughs in their investigation, Yorkshire police had good reason to believe he was about to lose a trial, too. Over two years, they combed through medical records at both Leeds General and St. James's Hospital. They collected an astounding 3,000 pieces of evidence and 7,000 statements from staff. They also examined every death that occurred during Collins' employment at the two institutions. The list totaled 72. Medical records experts determined that 18 deaths required further investigation. From those 18, there were at least 5 that stood out, including patients Doris Ludlam, Bridget Burke, and Irene Crooks, All hip surgery patients, all elderly women, and all dead from hypoglycemic attacks, which resulted from insulin overdoses despite not being diabetic. Medically, this cause of death is a rarity, so the fact that it happened multiple times among Colin's patients was damning. In 2005, Colin Norris was officially charged with four counts of murder and one of attempted murder. Two years later, in 2007, his trial began at Newcastle Crown Court in England. At the trial, Both Colin's colleagues and patients relayed the stories of his cold arrogance, harsh words and neglect, which painted a clear picture for jurors. In one damning story, an ex-boyfriend revealed Colin intentionally killed three of their pet rabbits. Originally, Colin lied about giving the animals vitamins, but eventually he admitted to overdosing them with insulin shots, just like his patients. The case quickly gained media interest. Headlines included Angel of Death and Serial Killer Nurse. Outright accusations that may have angered Colin since on one occasion he shoved a journalist against a wall. Throughout the trial he put his temper on full display even with a whole courtroom watching. It seems he couldn't express his emotions with anything other than rage which only gave the prosecution more ammunition to attack Colin's character. Forensic psychiatrist Sir Richard Badcock, who had a history of assessing medical murders, honed in on Colin's arrogance, lack of empathy, and immorality. According to the DSM-5, these signposts seem to suggest that Colin might suffer from a condition known as antisocial personality disorder. By March 3, 2008, the jury had heard enough. After nearly six years, 32-year-old Colin Norris was found guilty of murdering four patients and attempting to murder another. In the end, Colin was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison. There was one glimmer of hope. In 2010, Colin's case catalyzed the UK's government into action. They proposed increased oversight for students working within the National Health Service in the UK. These changes would allow supervisors in nursing schools to make notes about a student's personality and fitness in the medical profession. Those notes could then be passed along to future professors and potential employers, so they can be aware of patterns or areas of concern. Had this been in place when Colin was applying for jobs at the start of his career, it's possible he wouldn't have been hired, especially not to work with the elderly. It seemed justice had been carried out. However, Colin's journey through the court system after his sentencing reveals that not everyone found him guilty. In 2011, insulin experts argued that spontaneous hypoglycemia can occur in older patients. This would support initial conclusions that Collins' victims had died by natural causes. Still, it was a weak argument. After all, Colin had knowingly predicted his last victim's death, and all four victims had a severely high dosage of insulin in their systems. There's nothing natural about that number. Following years of failed appeals, in February 2021, Collins' case was sent to England's Court of Appeal, It's possible his original conviction
0: could be overruled, but it hasn't happened yet. It's concerning to consider that Colin Norris might be freed in the future. This whole story is so peculiar because it's hard to grasp why a burgeoning caretaker would hold such hatred for the very patient cohort he's most likely to treat. This was clearly a dangerous formula, Alistair, for Colin's patients and even his own sanity. Though his actions were inexcusable, he's a cautionary tale of what can go wrong when a medical professional truly hates their work. While the National Health Service's proposed oversights are great and could save future lives, it's too bad that positive policy reform always surfaces in the wake of people like Colin Norris. Colin
2: Norris veered so far from the boy Glasgow neighbours described as a personable, decent young man who was close to his granny. Over time, his kind, nurturing side entirely disappeared. Whether or not Colin Norris ever felt judged for being a male nurse, he certainly gave all his fellow professionals a bad name. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Colin Norris, among the many sources we used, we found reporting by The Telegraph extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Asia Gallo, edited by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.
1: Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in nexium the branch davidians heaven's gate and more cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history details never heard on our show before if you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who Joined them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com cults.